0: so good to be with you again thank you for taking the time to make the time to join and become a part uh Jay fuller interviews uh Jay fuller interviews on facebook instagram twitter youtube also the backfire podcast with jeff fuller of j fuller interviews on uh, google Podcasts, apple itunes and as i've stated before i believe people's stories make our stories better so take the time listen, unlearn what you thought was right to relearn what is right and just live differently. One with a tremendous story is the one, the only, Glenn Stout. Glenn, welcome back. Thank you very much, Jeff. So uh, as you are aware and others are aware, during the pandemic last year, I started this podcast, YouTube channel, just having conversations with people because I enjoy hearing people's stories. And um, first question is, how have you survived this last year? (laughs)
1: Um, You know, I think I've actually had a a pretty easy time, I have to, I feel very fortunate. Um, That's sort of because I've been working at home for 25 years, so there wasn't that dramatic change for me that I think there was for a lot of other people, and um, many of my connections with people or writer friends have always been a little remote. Uh, We talk on the phone more than we see each other. So that's you know I feel very fortunate that way, and I think we were also lucky that uh, you know this has been a time where you've you you've wanted to look around the corner and have something around the corner, right. um, and there wasn't anything around the corner for a lot of people. But I was I was very fortunate. Uh, you know, my daughter recently had our first grandchild, uh, so we were looking forward to that, and then I had a book coming out, so I was looking forward to that. As we were just discussing, I had hip replacement surgery (laughs) I was looking forward to that. So, you know, now everything is done. So I'm kind of I go get my second shot tonight or this afternoon. So um, I feel like, you know, good to go. And, um, you know, everybody stayed healthy. And, uh, you know, my friends and family did as well. So I feel very, very fortunate for that.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Glenn Stout Glenn has a new book, uh, Tiger King, or I'm sorry, Tiger Girl. I apologize. Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, not Tiger King. I'm going back a year. Um, So a couple of quick questions about writing. For me, I have discovered the four-color pen, if I can show that, the four-color pen. But I just discovered this, and it's kind of hokey looking, but the five-color highlighter. <laughs> And so when a, I'm writing, a dangerous <laughs> yeah, when I am writing, I'm finding these almost too enjoyable and not that I'm so organized that I color code everything, but I find it has been helpful. What's kind of like a helpful uh, tip that you found along the way that just you use all the time now?
1: Well, the one that I share with everybody, which I think is, is, is really useful is what I call the font trick. And, you know, when we're writing, uh, it's always great if we have several weeks that we can set something aside and then go back to it. It looks fresh. Uh, Reality being what it is, deadlines and things like that, we don't always have that opportunity. So I came up with something that I call the font trick to kind of give myself that distance when I'm I'm editing a project or when I'm getting towards the end, I need to look at it with fresh eyes. And that is I'll go into my document and I'll I'll change the font size, I'll change the font so it looks different. And just because it looks different, all of a sudden you see it with fresh eyes and it becomes so much easier to edit, becomes so much easier to, um, to see what you've done and to, you know, the, the words aren't on the same place on the page and you don't realize the degree to which you kind of skip over things. So when you look at it uh, in a new font size, maybe even change the margin, do whatever you want. You know, don't put it into you know comic sans or something, but something that's still readable. I don't like Arial, so I will move it into Arial because if I like something in Arial, then I really like it. Oh, that's um, really
0: good.
1: Yeah, but uh, you know, th- I think that's like a really good trick. I've shared it with a number of writers. It works for just about everybody because it just gives you that little bit of distance. That's that's so helpful.
0: Yeah, I think that's really wise and uh, something we can learn from. Uh, When I was a director of a nonprofit, I tried to use different fonts for different words. And I was told instead of a newsletter, it looked like a ransom note. And so (laughs) (laughs) I I have to find that balance because when I try something, I'm all in and it doesn't uh, have the intended desire. But uh, Glenn, so this book, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, How much research, I mean, I'm just fascinated because I first met you uh, through one of your books regarding the Boston Red Sox in sports. I love sports. And so was this something you knew about or how did you even come across this story? Uh,
1: This is a story I've known about for and intended to write about for about 15 years. When I was working on *Young Woman in the Sea*, which is my biography of Gertrude Etterly, the first woman to swim the English Channel, while I was researching that in about 2006, um, I came across headlines in the newspaper that said, mentioned Tiger Girl and Candy Kid. Uh, I was initially intrigued simply by the the poetry of those names. Uh, you know, who are these people? But I rapidly discovered, uh, while I was supposed to be researching Edderly and I'm reading stories about Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, I I discovered that there was more to it than that, that they were not just interesting headlines, but they had a really interesting story behind them that for a period of time, about five or six months, they were as famous as any two people in the United States. Uh, And the more I read about them, the more I realized they intersected with the jazz age in some really interesting ways Um, so as far back as about 2006 I decided I wanted to write a write a book about them I went ahead and did a proposal and we thought we were going to go to auction with it right after uh, young woman in the sea came out but the 2008 recession hit
0: Hmm.
1: Um, no one bid on it so I kind of put it in my back pocket but the story wouldn't leave me alone I continued periodically to research, and about three years ago, I was finally done with uh, another project. And I said to my to my agents, "This is the only book I want to do." And um, reluctantly, they put it forward. And uh, I was fortunate enough that Houghton Mifflin picked it up. And uh, you know, by then, it's probably for the best that the book wasn't done you know, 12 years ago, uh, simply because more material has become, became available, but there was no lack of material. I mean, these people were covered by every newspaper, not only in the country, but particularly in the cities where they did most of their damage, you know, Baltimore, New York city, and Buffalo, uh, multiple newspapers covered everything that they did for a period of time. So there was no lack of, uh, of research material, primarily in the newspapers. Um, You know, if anything, it was a a matter of wading through everything and uh, discovering what I really needed rather than wading through everything and trying to put everything in. Um, But that's how that's the genesis of the story. That's how it came about.
0: That's really uh, fascinating. Um, so, so many questions going through my mind. I'll try to ask them relatively orderly. Uh, I just watched a, um, a movie about Bonnie and Clyde and that time period in history. And so I found it just very entertaining, but just understanding some of the factual evidence of the backstory, it was compelling for you. Was it similar with these characters, but then you realize that they're real life people? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, they're
1: important, uh, not so much because of
0: themselves as
1: individuals, but the way that their story interacts with the time period. And, you know, they predate Bonnie and Clyde by about, you know, seven or eight years. So, you know, Bonnie and Clyde give you insight into the Depression era. Uh, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid give you insight into the Roaring 20s. And it's an insight into the Roaring 20s that I think you don't get if you read F. Scott Fitzgerald hmm. or if you watch The Great Gatsby. This is a working-class kid perspective. They were working-class kids who aspired to have everything that they saw in the movies and uh, in the magazines. They wanted to live this fabulous life that the bootleggers were living during, the, during Prohibition. Yeah. Um, but they were very real people, and I think that's the challenge with a book like this is to try to bring the characters to life, to try to humanize them, even as some of their behaviors are sort of inhuman and not very savory, But uh, and not to excuse anything they do, but to try to understand it in the context of the time. Um, and the interesting thing about that time period, for one of many reasons, is there are some parallels to today. Uh, Margaret and Richard Whittemore were coming out of, uh, you know, World War I had just ended, there had been the Spanish influenza, a pandemic, and right after that, there was a very brief but very severe economic depression. Uh, they didn't have many options, and all around them, what do they see? Well, prohibition is in effect, uh, bootleggers are everywhere, there's a spirit of lawlessness. Uh, the feeling is, is that all the politicians and most of the police are probably on the take, uh, this is a time where, you know, take what you can get, grab what you can. And, uh, you know, they're looking at the mass media of the time, which is still pretty much the same mass media we're looking at today. It's just delivered in a different way. The, the age of celebrity, a time period where you can become famous for, you know, swallowing goldfish or sitting on a flagpole. And uh, and they saw their opportunity to, uh, to you know, become famous and to live the lifestyle that they dreamed about. It. Right. And uh, you know, they 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 didn't worry about much else. They didn't worry about tomorrow. They didn't worry about consequences. They just they just went for it in the only way they knew how.
0: So Glenn Stelt makes some time. Twitter, it's at Glenn Stell, and that's two ends. Glenstell on Instagram's Glenn Stell Books. And talking Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, you mentioned the research going through the newspapers. Was that kind of surreal going back for you? Were they literal newspapers that you were uh, just trying to research and look at?
1: Uh, primarily I'm looking at microfilm or today we were very fortunate in that there are some uh, you know, website services that have taken newspapers on microfilm and digitized them, makes it easier to search. Yeah. But you're literally going through, like when you're looking at microfilm, you're scrolling, look, scanning page by page by page. It's the same process I've used uh, to do historical sports books. Um, You know, I liken it to, you know, if I'm writing about the 1918 World Series and there's a particular play in the World Series, a a double play ball to the shortstop, well, the challenge is is to make that uh, cinematic, is to make that three-dimensional. And fortunately, by looking at multiple accounts of the same event, whether it's a ground ball to shortstop, or whether it's a jewelry heist, you come up with enough detail from a number of different reports that you put that all together. It's almost like a 3D printer. You're layering all the detail on top. So suddenly it's not just a simple jewel heist, but you see the people getting out of the car, you see them walking into the jewelry store, you see the reactions of the people in the store, all from reported information, and you build it that way. So the process, you know, people say, how can you write about true crime when you've been writing about sports? The methodology and the process sure. is identical. Um, so, And, and I'm you know, relatively familiar with the 1920s from several other books that I've used yeah. that have intersected with the 1920s. So that really wasn't a challenge. I knew how to do this. And I was extraordinarily fortunate uh, in regard to Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid is that there was so much reportage about them. Um, it wasn't a question of not having enough. It was probably a question of, you know, deciding what to use and right. and not going overboard and trying to keep the story moving along and not have you have you bogged down, give enough context for the time and the place, but but keep the story moving.
0: So when you were doing any research, did you allow yourself to get sidetracked or wonder what else was taking place uh, through that microfilm, like how much? Uh, groceries cost or what was going on in the world of sports what was something that was intriguing that you found out just about life in those days
1: oh sure i mean that's that's how i discovered them is because i allowed myself to get sidetracked i, I always follow my curiosity and uh, i certainly did it while doing this book as well and that's how you kind of you come across some details that really allow you to to enhance the story, to to make it that three-dimensional, you know, cinematic experience, Uh, you know, one instance of that would be, you know, just discovering, um, you know, the context of, like, automobiles then. You know, the 1920s was the first time that everyone had automobiles. (laughs) And you see this fixation on automobiles between, with Richard Whittemore in particular, you know, every time they have a big score, it seems, he goes out and he buys the one of the most expensive cars that's available. At one point, he has something that's called a locomobile, which cost about eight thousand dollars in cash, which was the same kind of car that the Astors drove and other, you know, uh, high society figures in New York City at the time. Another time, he buys a brand new Cadillac, you know, and then just looking at the clothing of the flappers, for instance, and placing Margaret as uh, as a flapper and then examining the role the flappers had during that society you know because this is a time period where women kind of for the first time were allowed some agency over their own lives uh they weren't stuck necessarily stuck at home but they could go out at night they could be independent they could make their own decisions well margaret is the first generation uh who was allowed to do that now she made a lot of bad decisions but uh nevertheless it's interesting to look at her in that context of the first generation of an independent woman, uh, able to live life on her own terms.
0: So Glenn, talk to me about that balance filter. Uh, I can't think of the right word when you are talking about true crime, crime, but for some reason, when we watch movies, read stories, there's a sense of cheering for the bad guy how did you tr- work through that process of sharing what they did, but also just telling the story and for the entertainment value that it is? Well, it's
1: on the entertainment side that a lot of that kind of comes from the press coverage at the time. This is the beginning of the tabloid newspaper era. And so I didn't have to do cheerleading about them, so to speak. I allowed the tabloids to do that because the tabloids very quickly realized that one, crime sold, and in regard to Margaret and Richard Whittemore, that they were a romance, a couple, and they marketed them, so to speak, as this romantic couple. And younger people, uh, other flappers and, and sheiks, that's what the, the, the flappers' boyfriends were called then, sheiks, hmm. they responded to Richard and Margaret not with disdain, not with horror because they were committing these crimes, but with envy, they saw in their story,, um, you know, some of their own aspirations as kind of limited and twisted as they are. Um, so, so I didn't have to to do that. I didn't have to endow the story with that. That was embedded in the story already. And, you know, as far as entertaining, it is entertaining. Again, I think in the way that it intersects with the era, because I get to describe cabaret life, I get to describe the impact of jazz. And as I mentioned before, the, the, the clothing and the lifestyle and just, you know, this is, you're coming out of, of the Victorian era and this is the beginning of the progressive era. And all of a sudden everything is wide open. You can go to the movies, everything is electrified. You can go out at night, everybody has telephones. You can connect with other people. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much the modern world that we're still living in today. The medium of delivery of everything is different. It's digital now. Sure. But, you know, you're still experiencing some of the same things. People are obsessed with music. They're obsessed with movies. They're obsessed with celebrity. Um, that's our world today. And it's interesting to watch them come into that uh, right away and become enthralled with it um they kind of loved being the center of attention and i think the people that were swept up in their story lived vicariously through them
0: Glenn stout makes some time glenstout.com again two ends in glout we're ta- uh, glenn i'm sorry we're talking about his uh latest book <coughs> the tiger girl and the candy kid uh where do these nicknames come from
1: Yeah, well, Tiger Girl, uh, it was the name of a movie starring Lillian Gish. It was originally Tiger Lil, and then they called it Tiger Girl. Um, It kind of referred to a woman who was both kind of sensuous and sexy, but also innocent. And in the early 1920s, the press adopted it, and they loved stories about young women, flappers gone bad. And there was a particular young woman, a 16-year-old in California, who you know, was embracing this new era, and she wanted to go dancing. And her mother would not allow her to go dancing, so she killed her with a hammer. The press called her Tiger Girl, because here's this 16-year-old who looks so innocent, yet at the same time she can be incredibly violent. And they started to use that name for any flapper gone bad. And when Margaret was arrested for the first time with her husband, uh, this was in Philadelphia in an apartment and when the police burst in somebody hit the lights and Margaret's first reaction was to grab the guns and pass them out to the other gang members uh, the police saw that it Was reported in the press and the press called her a tiger girl candy kid didn't come until later until they Richard was arrested for the last time and they also, then arrested Tiger Girl and realized they had this massive criminal gang enterprise robbing jewelry stores going. And they knew that she was called Tiger Girl. I think they wanted a nickname for him and they found the perfect one because Candy Kid has a number of meanings. One, Candy Kid at the time was someone who was a sweet talker. He could talk a girl into anything. And Richard, for although he was in many ways, you know, like a sociopath, he was also very glib. He could also turn on the charm. People liked him. Um, That was one meaning of Candy Kid. Candy was also slang even back then for drug use, particularly cocaine, and the gang did use opiates and cocaine. And then the third meaning of that uh, is, again, something that's still in use today. Candy is also slang for jewelry, particularly diamonds. So Candy Kid fit Richard like a glove uh, in every way you possibly could. And then when you paired... Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid in a headline, boom, now you had a romance. You didn't just have a singular crime. You had a romantic coupling uh, and one that could be sold on the street corner every day by the Newsboys. And they did that.
0: And so, Glenn, and I'm not trying to make a political statement, but whenever you say you're not trying to make a political statement, you're probably making a political statement. Um, So I grew up uh, here in central Vermont. My dad, he's hunted for years and years and years, and so we have hunting rifles, handguns, all of that. But this time period in history, it seemed like it was like the Wild Wild West as far as guns, and you could get whatever you wanted, whether it was directly with uh this story or right around this time period what is the fascination with guns was it just power at that time or is it kind of the same as now it's kind of power but also that show that you have something that others don't so control power and control
1: well a lot of it was power and i think the other thing is that you know world war one uh put guns in the hands of hundreds and hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. of american servicemen who You know, went over to Europe and were accustomed to handling guns and grew accustomed to the power of guns. And then when they came back, uh, a lot of them, because of prohibition, you know, went on the other side of the law and they were, you know, running liquor and working protection and things like that. And, you know, this was everything was a cash business. Then you were carrying around money, you weren't stashing it in banks. You were actually carrying cash. Nobody was being paid by checks. So, you know, payrolls were being delivered. And guns became, I think, kind of integrated uh, into American urban life in a way they really hadn't before. For one, there were a lot of them because World War I put a lot of guns into the market. Uh, There also wasn't a whole lot of control on guns. And, you know, one of the points I bring up in the book, too, it was an extraordinarily easy time to be a criminal. Um, identities were very fluid. You could be whoever you wanted to be. Um, investigative procedures for police were, were still relatively primitive. I mean, fingerprints were being used, but more for identification rather than investigation. So in terms of Richard Whittemore, for instance, you know, he used any number of aliases along the way uh, when they were living the high life in New York in his building he was known as Horace Waters, and when he was out in the cabarets, he was known as John Vaughn. And nobody really knew what he did, except that he had a lot of money. If you had a lot of money back then, people probably assumed it had something to do with, uh, with Prohibition, with running liquor. But nobody asked too many questions. There were a lot of people making a lot of money off of Prohibition in one way or another. Uh, I think it's funny because when people would ask Richard what he did for a living, he would just say, sales. Uh, <laughs> and that seemed to, to answer all the questions. And as long as you had cash on the barrel, you know, no one asked uh, many questions after that. But guns were, were pretty much everywhere. And that's where Margaret came in because she was the quintessential gun mall. And uh, she carried the guns for the gang because in New York at the time, there was a law called the Sullivan Act which was actually a pretty strict gun control law. If you were a convicted felon and you were caught with a gun, you were probably going to go to jail. So the gang kept most of their burglary kit, their big guns, their handcuffs, masks, things like that, uh, in a locker in Penn Station. And before and after every job, Margaret would go to Penn Station, retrieve the guns, and then after the job, collect them and bring them back. And they used her because, well, you know, a cop was likely to look the other way if it was an attractive young woman. She might be able to talk her way out of it. She might be able to play dumb. She didn't have a record. It kept the rest of the gang from being at risk. That's what a gun mall was. And I think Margaret, in many ways, is the archetypal gun mall. That's the the main role she served in the gang. She didn't participate... uh, in the actual robberies except for on one occasion but she certainly benefited materially from the robberies and she certainly played a role a supporting role in the gang
0: so glenn i interest to full disclosure i've not read the book but i've started the book uh on audible and i've found like the first few chapters really fascinating and entertaining and uh, well done so congratulations on that but uh for you when they came across and said we want to make the audio version was there a temptation where you wanted to read it or how does that all play out? Because I know some authors, they would love to have an audiobook, but that never is an opportunity for them. Right. Uh, you know,
1: I would have loved to have had the opportunity to read it, but I'm also wise enough to know that there are people who know how to do that. Uh, and I actually put the question out on Facebook to my friends. I said, you know, I'm just curious when they told me they wanted to do an audio book, would you prefer a, a male reader or a female reader? Because I don't listen to a whole yeah. lot of audiobooks. And the feedback came back is that most people preferred a female reader, which was fine with me. But the real serendipity was is that a friend of a friend, somebody who I'd met, but I don't know him well, he answered immediately. He says, This is who you have to get, Christina Delane. He he's involved in acting in Vermont and he's known her for years. She's an actor. And she's one of the premier readers of audiobooks in the country. Her books win awards. Uh, People listen to books read by her simply because she reads them. And so uh, he put put me in touch with Christina Delane, and we were able to work that out. And I think she does a terrific job. She really is responsive. Uh, you know, I try to write with a little bit of sound and pace and rhythm.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, the words aren't random. I want them to sound well, too. And I think she's extraordinarily adept at bringing out the voice of the book that I wanted it to have at the same time without making it sound cliched or sing-songy or or, or overtly theatrical. I think she allows you to slip into the story uh, in a very natural way. She's She's absolutely terrific.
0: So, Glenn, when does this hit the big screen?
1: <laughs> uh, well, I hope it does. I mean, I, I have received some some sort of soft queries already in regard to film rights. Um, you know, right now, The Young Woman in the Sea, the book about Trudy Ederly, uh, that's been placed with Disney+, Plus, well, and all indications are is we'll probably go yeah. into production on that this fall. I'm hoping that Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid uh, kind of follows in that pathway, because I think the story is, is, is one, it's just um, very entertaining. Two, it's sort of set up to be a real nice period piece, and it features a romance. I think it could work as either a feature film or an extended series. Uh, I hope somebody, uh, you know, maybe somebody listening today who's <laughs> moved from California <laughs> to Vermont for the pandemic, you know, hears this or, or a friends of a friend, Um, I think it will probably get optioned whether it turns into an actual film or not. um, It's hard to say. They say the odds are one in a thousand once you get optioned of actually Mm. reaching the screen. So I'll cross the fingers and, uh, and see what happens.
0: Is there a scene from the book that you would like a specific cameo in? (laughs)
1: Uh, you know, I think I would probably best be served, uh, you know, maybe in the background in the club shanty with a, with a cocktail in front of me where I don't have to have a speaking part, but can just, uh, you know, maybe wear a, a nice looking jazz suit and, uh, you know, maybe have a, maybe have a flapper nearby, if not on my knee, uh, that would be, that would be plenty for me.
0: And again, Glenn Stout, making some time, glen2endstout.com. The name of the newest book is Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. How many books are you up to now, Glenn?
1: Uh, if you count uh, books I've ghostwritten and edited and all that, this would be book number 100 uh, wow. done over the last 30 years. So I'm kind of both mystified by that as to how it happened and and also very proud of it of course some of them are very short and written for the juvenile market and like I said some of them are anthologies I just edited but uh but nevertheless uh it's it's gratifying not only to have book 100 but also to have a book that I first thought about 15 years ago and uh didn't abandon and had faith in and uh persevered and finally to see it uh see it come out and to get the uh, the reception that it's gotten so far, which has been, you know, positive, uh, uh, as positive as I could dream, uh, is very, very gratifying.
0: And Glenn, thanks again. You've been so generous with your time. A few uh, quick questions and then and then we'll get you out. Could you just sure. share the story again about uh, what first inspired you to write and how nervous were you with your first creative writing class back in high school or middle school, whenever it was? Um what
1: first inspired me to write was—I think I was about 14 years old—and we had an assignment in an English class to find some poems and to illustrate them with, uh, you know, pictures we'd cut out of magazines. And you know, at that point, uh, I think I, the the most serious book I'd ever read was probably the Baseball Life of Mickey Mantle, or something like that. So, like poetry, ugh. Um, but my brother, who's four years older. Um, had a book and he handed it to me and it just so happened that uh, one of the poets in the book was langston hughes the uh, african-american poet uh, of the harlem renaissance in the 20s and 30s and i encountered a poem uh, probably one of the first poems i'd ever read other than casey at the bat and it was called suicide's note and it went the calm cool face of the river asked me for a kiss and that image of someone leaning over looking at their reflection in the water, pondering the end of their own life, uh, that hit me over the head like a hammer. Uh, And uh, I just was stunned that words could be so powerful. And at that moment, I decided this is what I wanted to do. Uh, And I did take that, you know, creative writing class. And I was on the school newspaper. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really afraid of writing back then. I've actually looked at some of the stuff I did back then. And for as bad as much of it is i'm also still really thrilled by how i didn't realize there were any borders on what i could write about or what i could do and i think that's the most important thing for a young writer is to have the opportunity to write a lot and to write about anything and you know don't worry about getting things published just get your words out there start working that that word muscle It's like if you, you know, play guitar, you got to learn the chords first and it takes a long time. And uh, I'm really, really fortunate that I had a really supportive teacher in high school. uh, The journalism professor teacher who uh, uh, let me write whatever I wanted in school newspaper. (laughs) And uh, she still gets a copy of every book, uh, uh, every book that I write because I'm so appreciative. Had that not happened, that I would not had that support who knows, you might just move on to something else. But uh, but she encouraged me every step of the way.
0: Now, you mentioned that you don't listen to a lot of books, but do you read a lot? And do you read for fun? Or do you read for research? I'm, I've been able
1: to read a little bit more for fun in the last six or eight or eight months, partially because of my hip, partially because I'm in between projects, you know, working on the best American sports writing uh, ate up a lot of my reading time. So uh, in recent years, I haven't been able to read as much as I've wanted to, um, but I'm getting back into it, and that's been really fun. Reading books by writers that I've worked with and writers that I've known that I've never had the opportunity really to read them very much, and, and that's been really enjoyable to see how how other people are doing uh, other nonfiction stories like this. Um, you know. I'm still doing, you know, uh, another version of the sports writing book, but my work with that, even to this point, is sort of over. Um, So going forward, I will have time to do some more reading. Uh, I'm not sure what my next book project will be. Uh, I'm pondering a few things, but I haven't dove into the research yet. Uh, So I'm kind of enjoying this downtime. You know, every book kind of exhausts you. You're like a balloon with no air in it. And I think... Uh, after that, you need to put air back into the balloon. And part of that is reading other people and uh, getting that muscle working again. So you're not thinking about the book you just wrote, but you're you're thinking more wildly. you're you're leaving yourself open to become curious about something else.
0: And Glenn, how we concluded the first interview last year, you shared a story about September 11th and a book that you had written and uh, just identifying with the characters. I do apologize. I don't have a graphic for that that book, but could you just share once more about how important is it that writers but readers can identify with the characters even the tiger girl and the candy kid it's not necessarily to emulate their actions but we can certainly learn from anyone whether we voted for them this time or last time or we got the vaccine or didn't get the vaccine i just have a big push now that if we take the time to learn from people then that will make us better but so often we take the time to point out the faults or differences but what say you you're the author i'm just a talker
1: Well, it's well, it's all about, you know, understanding. And I've always believed and I still believe that, you know, the role of storytelling is, is that it allows us to know each other. Whenever we meet a stranger in any context, you know, you might exchange some greeting or whatever. But the moment you start sharing stories with each other, you're sitting in a restaurant or a bar, or you're sitting outside somewhere, and you you talk about the weather with someone and then all of a sudden maybe somebody starts telling you about a storm they experienced and and you respond with you know a storm you experienced or they talk about a game they saw and you say oh i was at that game and you start telling stories to each other that's the moment when strangers become not so strange that's the moment when we begin to know each other and i think that's the impulse that's behind all kinds of storytelling is that that's the way we connect with each other as people uh you don't have to uh you know want to be candy girl or candy kid and tiger girl but you start to understand them and you can have discussions with people you know when we write something we don't want it just to sit there and disappear we want the reader to be able to take it and go to someone else and say you've got to read this well, you've just created a shared experience between two readers. Now they have something to discuss. I think that justifies being a writer.
0: Yeah. So good. Again, Glenn Stelt, uh, thank you for making the time and just sharing. And uh, this book, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, if you are a slow reader like myself, get the audio version or get both. And then you can read along as you listen to it, as I do often. But uh, Glenn, we thank you for the time. I say final question like four times. Everybody can tell them I'm I'm a pastor because I have like 15 conclusions and I never (laughs) stop. But you you said you aren't certain about your next book. Do you think you want to go back to sports, so to speak? Or do you kind of like looking at this historical? Or is it just whatever the opportunity gives to you? Well,
1: I mean, some of it's opportunity. Some of it's just curiosity and interest. I don't know if I have... um, much more I want to say about sports. I mean, I, I wrote a lot of sports history. Uh, that market is sort of not there in the time periods I'm interested in yeah. that it once was. So so who's to say? Um, you know, I'm looking for projects that will, you know, I never thought I'd write about a woman swimming the English Channel either, but I, I got intrigued by that. Um, so I'm just kind of sort of gonna leave my mind open and see what sticks, you know, see what's see what keeps tapping me on the shoulder and, you know, scratching my ear that says, you know, you really need to look at this more, you really need to write this, which is exactly what happened with Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. So um, you know, I think that's a real lesson. If it's if if I can find something that's intriguing and interesting enough to keep my curiosity going for a period of time, then I think it's likely that the same thing will happen with a reader.
0: Well, that's Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. You said it was like on your mind for 15 years. What kept you motivated to keep going back to that? Or was it just randomly you had thoughts of like, oh, I remember this project?
1: Well, some of it was stubbornness, because I couldn't believe that um, uh, that it was turned down the first time. Yeah. Some of it was also just like fear. I mean, I have told other people, I said, you know, I had a Google alert for Richard Whittemore and the Candy Kid for 15 years, because I was so sure that the story was so rich that somebody else was going to discover it. Um, and no one did. And the longer that happened, the more um, anxiety, I felt that, you know, it's really going to be up to me to tell this story. Um, uh, you know, I felt like, you know, I, the same way the gang felt when they knew that there was, you know, a safe full of diamonds, I knew it was there. I just had to wait for the right time to get into it. And, and that's, you know, sort of what I feel happened. I mean, the timing is, is right in a lot of ways, uh, even though there's a pandemic and this is a very tough time to sell books you know we're sort of coming out of that i think this is like sort of a nice escape for people you know i hope to see people on the beach with this book you know if you just need to turn yeah. turn off the volume of the present and and drop into an entirely different environment for a few hours that's that's what books like this can do and and, and do it in an interesting way that's also sort of thought provoking and and intriguing
0: Oh, certainly. Glenn, thanks so much for making the time. Enjoy the rest of your day. Let that heal hip and uh, enjoy your grandchild. So Glenn, wish you all the best.
1: Thank you very much, Jeff. I always enjoy talking to you.
0: And again, Glenn Stout makes up time. Jay Fuller interviews, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and also the Backfire podcast with Jeff Fuller of Jay Fuller interviews on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, and Google Podcasts. Make the time to listen to someone's stories, unlearn what you thought was right to relearn what is right. Makes us all better and uh, gives us more friends around the world as well. Thanks all.